Hey, Sham, I was wondering if you might be able to speak about a couple of different topics I have questions about. The first one would be camouflage, um, maybe how camouflage applies to the gray man situation. I know you've talked about in uh, previous episodes on YouTube back in the day about camouflage um, and how it might be able to, uh, well, how it might could make you a target. And um, I was wondering if you could more elaborate more about that, how it uh, applies to the gray man uh, principles. Um, you know, maybe some, uh, different kinds of camouflage that, uh, say for example, an escape invasion situation that might be helpful. I know that there's different kinds of camouflage out there that could help. And the other thing I'd like you to uh, talk about if you can is uh, mental toughness. How do these guys that involve themselves with, uh, the espionage world, how do they stay more sharp and how do they keep on their toes and, you know, deal with the things they deal with? Appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome to Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight. I am your host, Shammer, and we're going to answer that viewer's question that was sent to me today. I want to point out I got something wrong, and it was either my first or second episode when I was just getting used to using the Anchor program. If you are on Anchor, you can find this easily, but if you're on another platform, if you go to anchor.fm.com or the Anchor app, you'll see a little button there that says message. In my first episode, I said that goes to my email. I was wrong. That's for you to leave a voice message like we just heard. So if you want to ask a question, I'm going to throw it up on the air. And I'm going to do my best to answer that question. I took a break there for a little while, almost two weeks, uh, to deal with some personal stuff. I was just planning tonight on what order to do shows in when I just got this message and thought, might as well start it right now. I want to point out that even in the context of how that was asked to me, these are both very large questions. Um, So you'll already know by the time you're watching this if this is going to be a long episode or not. But those are very big questions to me. So I'm going to try to hit those up. I'm going to start with the camouflage. That was the order it was asked in. So for me, going off the gray man concept, when I think camouflage, I keep it to as simple as when I say blending in. So to me, camouflage is anything you wear to help hide you. But the question is very specific. It's specific to camouflage patterns, military, hunting style, apparel, especially when you mentioned a former YouTube episode I did several years ago talking about how it can make you a target, which is what he wants me to address. I'll start by saying that the only time I wore camouflage in my intelligence career was in the very beginning. When I was a senior non-commissioned officer in the Army, some years before I retired, I started out as what is called a human intelligence collector before I went on to bigger, better things. And of course, being in the military, I wore camouflage and wore it overseas in Iraq where I was working. Other than that, though, I never worked in an operational environment where I had to wear it. Although I do wear it on occasion now, even just as casual everyday wear. I wear it quite a bit when I train people. I wear some of my older stuff when I go camping just because it's comfortable. It's also easy to do here. It's very common, especially during hunting seasons. You see a lot of camouflage. In the state of Arizona, we have several patriot groups, um, law-abiding ones, that are either identified as a 3%er type organization or perhaps a militia or some sort of citizens league that all wear camouflage. The majority of the patterns you see here are the old-style BDU, what they call BDU, but it's woodland camouflage, and also the current use patterns that has several different names. Uh, started out as Scorpion before they changed it a little bit. It went on into Multicam, and then whatever the term is now they're using is actually technically by name a different pattern that the British military uses, but I think the Multicam is the same. But I've seen other patterns as well. So in the episode he was referencing... I think it was the one about bugging out gray man style, but we we're definitely were having that conversation. I don't know if it's specifically that episode, but we were talking about bugging out. I was on the show with a bunch of people that are either preppers or survivalists, things like this, talking about my point of view on basically surviving in a long-term scenario, which is your end of the world apocalyptic scenario. Perhaps it's just like the current situations we have now, but they get worse and you have to leave that area. And you don't have the everyday resources, like maybe you don't have a house or an RV. Perhaps you don't even have a vehicle anymore. Things like we see on the movies, which have happened in other countries and could very well happen here. And my discussion on it was how it can make you a target. So the way I live is I look at everything as a potential threat. That's just part of what I do. And I try to assess everything as a threat, whether or not I need to leave the situation, whether or not it's a target, whatever. And it goes far more deep than that. So what I was discussing was, in these types of situations, it's no different than everyday life now, but it's a little more sensitive because you're in a survival type situation 
and you want to make it out of there if you're by yourself or you have family and friends to protect or you're a scouting party, whatever it is, and figuring out what's the best way to blend in. So everybody had differing opinions. Some people are hunters, some people are military, some people love their camouflage, some people just don't care. I look at it as any type of real mission. So when I was in the military and when I did intelligence stuff, when we did missions, we, we prepped and prepared for them. And, you know, in the military, you don't look too much at what you're wearing. You're wearing military garb. In the intelligence world, we took a little bigger look at it. So if I was meeting with a professor versus meeting with an executive at a large Fortune 500 company, or if I was just meeting some guy in the street trying to make my appearance not only blend in and identify who I was, but make them more comfortable as well. So in those situations, I was like, look, I would definitely suggest assessing those situations to figure out the best things that you can wear. So part of the discussion was, let's say you're wearing military clothing. Military clothing, it fits, it matches. You know, let's say you're relatively in shape or appear to be in shape while wearing the clothing. Even add on that you have perhaps an AR-15 or similar type uh, rifle, perhaps even other tactical gear cool guy stuff as they call it or tactical which the only difference is whether or not you know how to use it you give off a persona there are assumptions that will be made about you right wrong or indifferent and you have to recognize that so in that situation you're moving throughout the wood line or through the city whatever and so you're by yourself with a couple people you're dressed like this two types of people are going to be attracted to you one is somebody who wants a savior which could be a big problem depending on what you're doing and whether or not you want to help them. But you could have people drawn to you that believe you know what you're doing. And unfortunately, that could be dangerous for them because there's plenty of people that look the role but can't act the role. The other situation is becoming a target. You could be seen as a threat. Even if it's good people, but it could be bad people too. They're like, hey, there's a guy or a couple guys that probably know what they're doing. We need to overwhelm them and remove them from the playing field so that we don't have that threat there. You may have people that need your help. Perhaps you need help and you're on your own and you find a group of people somewhere and they don't want to let you in. And even though they, they see you as a threat because you look like this trained and skilled person who might take over, you're not, of course, going to do anything because there's, say, 20 of them that are armed and you're trying to, you know, not escalate this situation. So that's part of what the threat process was. How are you viewed? So it really comes down to reading people and the messages you give off. And the thing is, if you're smooth and you play it well, you can wear camouflage, especially if it's military colors, and really kind of get people off the idea who you might be. But I got to tell you, I don't see camouflage and think that person was a vet. I don't see guys fishing and hunting and going, oh, they must have been a vet. You can buy that stuff anywhere. I don't make those assumptions. Now, granted, there's a lot of people in the military that can identify other military people, especially after they leave. I think the longer you were in the military and the more exposure you had, the more likelihood you have identifying a larger base of former military. But if you're only in the military for, say, like three years, there's probably some people you'll miss. I think that's true in any industry. But that's something to think about. Are you a, are you a threat? Could you be perceived as a threat? Or could you be attractive to people? Could you be seen as a savior? What happens if you want to help people? Even if there's just, say, five of them, you know, couple people aren't doing too well healthy-wise, not able to move as quick as you. A couple people are younger. you got security issues there. You now have to provide for them even if you don't want to. You know, what happens if you blow them off? You know, if, and you're the only guy that looks like that. You're easy to identify. What if they're the wrong people that you blow off or leave there? So I always compare it to movies because like the movies, there's no right answer. Every situation's unique. So those are things to look at with the camouflage. Everyday life, it's not a big deal. It just, you know, it just depends on whether or not you're going to stand out. So you're wearing camouflage, you're going camping, going fishing, going hunting, and you happen to run by your local grocery store, your Safeway or Kroger or whatever. Yeah, you might stand out when you walk in there if it's not a place that sees that a lot at that time of year, but nobody really pays too much attention to it if it's somewhat regular in the area. So I don't think it's a threat in your everyday life. I mean, you would stand out more going to see a lawyer wearing camouflage outfit than you would walking into a grocery store but you just pick and choose how you want to dress other things you can do too looking at it under that context 
is the type of stuff you're taking, you're carrying all the time. Is it realistic for you? Are you in the physical shape to carry all the extra gear all the time? You can mix and match stuff. Some people make presumptions that if they have two or more camouflage patterns, that they're not going to mix and match them. You know, it's not a fashion show. So if you're in this type of situation, if that's what things become one day, you may find you're wearing whatever's the cleanest or not damaged. Some of it's going to be mixed and matched. One of the sets of gear I wear, people just always think it's so cool and get a little intimidated because I wear it because I looked apart. But it's completely mixed and match items that I've had over the years. And it was the gear I last used on a military deployment. So it just depends on the stuff you have. So it's really, what do you have? Why do you have it? Why are you going to wear it? Why are you going to use it? I buy different types of pants that are just as comfortable and similar to military style pants that don't look it. Some look like contractor pants. They call shoot me first pants. Some just look like everyday pants. I don't wear a lot of jeans myself. I just don't like them. You know, and I have similar type shorts. So it's just something to have in your toolkit to figure out what you want to wear, what you change. I tell people in those types of situations, you want to have extras of anything, you know, especially if you're constantly on the move. You're going to be changing clothes, undergarments, socks. Perhaps you change your appearance, even if you turn something inside out, even if you're going to be walking by a place by a distance. So that if they look at you through, say, binoculars, it's not as obvious what you're wearing. That might be something you do. So there's, there's changes you can make. But the threat there was you could be very attractive to people who need a savior, and you could also be considered a threat when you're not, which could result in you being attacked. So those are the things to really look at. What I can tell you is about some things that I do. Uh, for example, I have go bags. I have my operational bags. I have things I take when I travel versus what I have in my car regularly. So just using the types of things I might carry around on a regular basis or traveling a few hours from my home. I do have uh, not complete two changes of clothes, but I have close to two sets. One is very, very civilian and one is very, very military style. I do that out of habit. You know, if I was out driving somewhere a few hours from my house and the bad things happened and I'm in an environment where the camouflage makes sense, while I could be seen, I would use it to gain my distance, be less noticeable and try to make my way safely to wherever I need to go. Whereas the more civilian side also is more colorful, reflective type stuff in case it's a survival situation, search and rescue situation where I need to use those devices to either assist somebody or myself in some sort of rescue. For example, I have a couple of uh, hiking backpacks that are bags of mine, um, Baltoro bags. I like, or they're made by Gregory. They're just the stuff I like. And I have rain covers for them. So I have a, a blue and an orange, I think, civilian-style rain cover. makes it easier for me to be seen. I keep those for regular hiking, you know, camping, anything where I need those. But I also have ones that I think are gray or dark charcoal color that blend in with the color of the bag that in most lighting and at most distances is a little less noticeable. It's less noticeable to tell if I'm even carrying something from a great enough distance. But also doesn't stand out if I don't want to be seen. So that's something I do is carry different types of things, especially appearance-wise, that I can change very easily uh, so that if I'm hiking and I want to be seen, I throw you know, whatever clothing on and I throw one of those gray covers on and then I make it a few miles and then I'm where I'm in a safe zone and there's, say, a group of people I need to signal, I can use one of those other hiking covers to get their visual attention so they can identify me just as one method you could use. So the big thing is understanding that anything you have that can be visualized, seen with the eyes, always has a potential to be attractive and to be threatening. So when I talk about the gray man concept and blending in, I always talk about you don't want to attract people. You don't want to draw attention to yourself. Drawing attention typically is going to go one or two paths. People are going to be attracted to what they see or they're going to see it as a threat. Attractive means they're interested. They want to pay more attention. Threat means they'll keep looking, but they want to get away from you. And in the gray man concept, those are two things we want to avoid. You don't want either one, so you want no attention whatsoever. So I keep those options available, but that's kind of why uh, the camouflage can be a bad thing. It's situationally dependent. It's going to depend on what you have, what the situation is, what options do you have. You know, Those are things to consider. You'll have to figure out on the fly. Using that video we made 
and the storyline we're using where somebody was bugging out, surviving on their own, maybe carrying a backpack. How much do you have? You know, how long has it been? You know, is it damaged? Even if you have all that stuff, if you need to wear stuff because cold weather kicks in, if it's not undergarments and it's, you know, coats, what if you don't have coats like that and they're more attractive? So it's figuring out what you got, how many different options you can carry on you, how you can make those changes. It's really a slower version, not as flashy a version of a quick change, being able to change your appearance quickly. So, you know, in a lot of military movies, especially when you meet a lot of people in militaries in other countries that are allied nations, a lot of them wear the beanie caps. Uh, military has them here, but they don't wear them a lot with their uniforms, sometimes deployed. They tend to wear the berets or the patrol caps, similar type headgear. But, you know, just having a beanie hat changes it. Uh, mixing up the color patterns. You know, how worn in is it? How faded is it? How well does it fit? You know, there's, I know guys that are extremely out of shape and overweight that are former military guys that are badasses, but you put the military uniform on, fits too tight. You know, unless you get too close to see them or, or talk to them, a lot of people just assume they don't know anything. It's because they think military, they think these in shape, tough guys. And I know plenty of guys that are actually in fairly good physical shape to look good in a uniform and don't know nothing. So that's part of the reason why the appearance matters. While other people, make their own judgments they're doing it off a of bias so doing role reversal here you're looking at somebody in camouflage what do you naturally think if it's hunting season somebody's carrying a rifle wearing camouflage you think hunter but that's not always the case usually it is sure but not always um, but what do you think when you see somebody of a certain physical condition their clothes fit a certain way what do you think about them if it's workout clothes if it's business clothes if it's casual clothes or if it's military uniforms Figure out what those judgments and biases are. Recognize it because you see that. Other people see that too. Probably see it in you. And then remind yourself, no matter what anybody else does, don't be them. Go into it very objectively. So using the scenario we did and the bugging out thing on the Gray Man Show talking about um, camouflage, in that scenario, I would, ver I would view everybody as a threat. That's what I would do, regardless of age or physical ability. Because... Any of them can be bait. So you take those survival shows, apocalyptic shows, you see this lone crying kid. My first thought is that's a huge threat because that may be bait. Yeah, you want to help the kid. I get that. But you need to check the area first. That might be bait. Somebody injured might be bait. Both of those situations happen in the Middle East to stage coordinated attacks, ambushes, IEDs, etc. Um, so be aware of your own biases and what you actually see. And just realize that it's no different than any other clothing. It can be a threat and it can be attractive. You don't want to be either. You can't control how everybody views you. But to the best of your ability, based on what you're doing, how well can you recon your battle space, as we'll say, from a military term? How well do you know the area? You know, you want to go into a town and it's this type of scenario. Have you surveilled the town? Have you taken the time to look, see how people act, the patterns they follow, the time changes, what clothing they wear? Does it look like people are changing their clothing very often? Do they look like they're staying clean? How can I best fit into that community to be more accepted, to get what I need, to get the help I need or to help them? Appearances are huge. Most of our judgments are based on the things we see. Most of the input are we consciously recognize comes in from our eyes as well subconsciously, and we make a lot of judgments on those, and a lot of them are wrong. We don't take time to really look, meaning analyze, think it over, listen closely, identify our own biases, assess the situation. Most people don't ever do that at all, let alone very rarely in maybe a business setting. Now, going further in the question for escape and evasion, the different types of camouflage, there are a few patterns out there that work pretty well all the time. There's a lot that suck. What I tell people is, if you're living long-term in an area and you're near a military base, I'd figure out what kind of patterns they wear if you're very serious about the survival concept. And I would get at least one um, sort of outfit, preferably fairly worn, worn in, that matches that pattern, even if it's blue camo. The reason why is there's a large population there that will have that type of outfit. You can easily blend in. Most of the time, if you're living there long-term, most of your civilian attire blends in. Either blends in in your everyday life, blends in at home, or blends in at business. 
most people own enough clothes to have at least two ways to dress to blend in normally in their environment. It just may not be every aspect of their environment. The other patterns I would look at is what works best in the non-urban areas. Urban areas, they make camouflage for it. They're not as widely known. Um, they're not used that much. And most civilian neutral colors, subdued colors, earth tones, grays, whatever, a lot of those work just fine especially with all the other colors around, all the concrete, pavement, all the people, the vehicles. There's room for error and a little bit of color. But if you want to look at patterns, so Scorpion was a good pattern. It was made by Cry Precision. Um, the military didn't buy it. They went through to Multicam. Scorpion was slightly different. Scorpion's noticeably uglier but it worked in almost every environment I was in, especially when it got a little faded and you just kind of disappeared with any amount of vegetation or desert. Uh, the Army's ACUs kind of suck. We all know that. They actually work very well, though, in heavily rocky gravel environments. The Flectarn and Tropentarm German patterns are actually really good. Also, whatever the new Multicam is, the same thing that the uh, British wear, that's a good pattern. There's several others. There's also ones, I think it's made by the Danish. I can't remember who makes them. They're pretty common. Some guys wear them around here. They wear them around in one of the militias. I can't remember the names. I'll have to get back to you on that. But there's, anyway, there's a few good patterns out there. There's also a YouTube channel. So especially for the guy who said this, clearly you've been on my YouTube or a fan on there. If you can see the channels I follow, there's... There's a channel on there where most of the guy's thumbnails, he's wearing camo and camo on his face, usually holding a rifle. And if you find more than one video, look at him. Most of his videos are going to be a thumbnail with him in a different camo pattern, wearing camouflage. And what he does is these videos, and he just takes, he takes the existing environment he's in. So there's some limitation to it. But it's actually a pretty decent one where he shows himself moving, crossing a stream, hiding at different distances, not really hiding, but letting you see him and how well the pattern kind of works depending on that type of daylight where you can get a pretty good idea, a starting point, I would say, on how well some of those patterns work, what they look like. Going into the escape and evasion portion, it's really a matter of where you're escaping and evading from and why and what's going to get you to blend in. So if you're in the middle of a city, like think of those, if you haven't been to a place like New York City or uh, walking through downtown Los Angeles, where there's a lot of people. You've probably seen it on TV shows where they just show seas of people walking. That's what it's like. It's a lot easier to hide in those crowds. You can stand out a little bit if you have really flashy neon colors in the wrong part of town, but it's pretty easy to move throughout those crowds and disappear rather quickly, where it's a little different if you're in a wooded environment. Most escape invasion training focus heavily on evading, meaning not leaving tracks, not leaving traces, mostly outside of urban environments, although there are some urban courses, especially like SEER school. There's different levels of SEER. Um, the Army has several SEER courses. Some special operation units teach their own. The Air Force have some. There's ones just for pilots that focus being on a downed pilot. There are civilian organizations that teach urban survival and some of these things. I would look heavily on, if you're going to pay to go, who they are, what their credentials are, it's all going to probably sound good. Find anybody that's done a review, but see what those people really know. Look up the terms and phrases they're using for what they're teaching to find out are you really getting your money's worth. I say this because I don't know of any specific civilian places that teach those. I, I know they're there. I've just never looked into them, so I couldn't really comment on which ones are good. But I know a lot of people who do weapons training. And there's been a mad rush in the last decade of former military and law enforcement people. You know, they get one or two classes, a deployment, and they see the prices special operations guys like Paul Howe and Travis Haley charge, and they think they can go out and charge 500 bucks a day too, and I think it's a crime. Some of them are just flat-out dangerous. Some of them don't teach you much. And I've told plenty of people and proved it by doing it that there's plenty of that stuff I teach for free. You know, buy me lunch and provide your own ammo and targets. Figure out what they're teaching you and if it's working. I would look more into a tracking course, tracking people and tracking animals. You'll actually learn quite a bit about evasion just secondhand because you'll be tracking each other in those schools. And there's some really good schools out there for it. But I would look at a tracking course before I got into any type of escape and evasion seer type training. But looking at the 
escape and evasion. So the whole process is really surviving overall, surviving through the process of being captured. That's what the school's really about. Escaping your location, evading enemy forces, and uh, you know, resisting them the whole time, resisting them while you're captured, surviving while you're captured, surviving after you escape and evade. And getting to friendly forces and being rescued. You know, that's not everybody's everyday situation. So there are some limitations in the training. They're not limited for what they're designed for. They're perfect for the military. But they're limited for a civilian because what are the odds you're going to be captured in Malaysia by a terrorist group and locked up in the jungle somewhere and then you have to escape? Pretty rare. Could happen, but probably not. So it's where are you? Who are you evading and why? How are you doing it? What are you wearing? How do you choose to move? Who are you paying attention to? Where are the cameras? Do you know if they have access to surveillance? What kind of surveillance? Are you dumb enough to carry a phone in these situations? Are you using public transit? Which ones are you using and why? You know, a cab in a large city where there's a lot of cabs you can get away with as long as there's not a lot of traffic. Subways can get you from point A to port B pretty quickly, but they are contained isolated systems where you could get trapped in there, you know, and you're in an underground passageway. You know, they all have their limitations they all have their benefits but from that point it, you got to look more into what the escape and evasion situation is to figure out what clothing you'd want to wear or what clothing you can beg borrow and steal to change going further into his question he talked about mental toughness so mental toughness is a huge subject. They actually tried to tackle that in the United States Army long before critical thinking, which they also have done very badly at uh, tackling and teaching people how to do. Mental toughness, you can look that up. It's a very general term. But um, based on the question, how most people ask it, it's how do you stay sane? How do you stay centered and balanced? How do you process and deal with the things you do, the things you see, the things you know? You know, what causes people stress? Some guys in the intel world, their biggest stress in their life is the things that they know. They know a lot of things, some of them. And some guys in that world or in the military world are what we call shooters, door kickers. They do a lot of things and see a lot of things. And that's maybe that's their biggest stress. So looking at it from the gray man and going heavily more towards the intel side and somewhat, somewhat in like the special operations world, Highly so in a couple of units, but most of the people that don't have the mental toughness or the intestinal fortitude or any of these phrases they would say don't make it through the screening process. Whether it's the interviews or interactions, most of them get caught on psych evals and the legit psych evals. So if you go work with a joint special operations, you know, command, the major commands working on joint task force. They're very general psych evals, making sure you're not going to give away secrets. But the bigger stuff, they're more in-depth, testing, lots of testing, interviews, lifestyle polygraphs. They're going to find stuff, ask invasive questions. The vast majority of people get pulled right there. And a lot of them aren't security threats or aren't mentally unstable. They're just identified as people that aren't going to make it. And it's usually going to be to the stress or the ability to handle these sensitive, high-pressure situations. For everybody else, why there's always going to be people that have a hard time, a lot of it's on you. There's some training that's provided, but a lot of it's on you. So looking at part of the question, you know, basically staying on your toes, paying attention to things. You go through that training, you have it all the time. It's very similar to like guys in the military, especially ones in combat. So there's a difference between people who deploy and then people who go to combat. Most people deploy, very few people are actually in combat. The ones that are in combat regularly, whether you call it PTSD or not, it's hypervigilance, different things like that. They kind of have it turned on all the time until they get the training or experience to control it, where they come home and they're always looking for things, acting a certain way. Some people describe them as on edge. The thing is the people that come back that are completely calm and normal actually do all the same things. That's typically not what the family notices. They notice is the more negative things. But they uh, kind of have it turned on all the time. In the intel world, what we call the professional gray man, they're turned on pretty much all the time. They live in a world where they're possibly always under surveillance. There's always 
a threat, a critical threat, adversarial intelligence. There's always something. But nobody really sees it because they're trained to be gray so they can hide it from people. Whereas somebody in the military, they're not trained that way. That's why it's a little more noticeable. It really comes down to the training. But the training and the mental preparations provided for you and the scenarios you go through in the training is really what helps. So, for example, I tell people I know guys in what we'll call the special operations world that I would call scarily sane, that in the course of their duties have killed a lot of people, dozens, some cases hundreds, and they are very mentally healthy. Might seem hard for some people to grasp that concept, but they are. They go through training for it. They're mentally prepared. They mentally prepare themselves. They know how to deal with it. They also talk to people. Some choose to get counseling and work things out that way. Some talk to their buddies. But what they have is a support system and a base. In certain parts of that world, your support system has to be the people you work with because you can't talk about stuff to anybody else. Not because it isn't a good idea or... You know, some sergeant in the army wants to scream classified because it's legit national security stuff. So you talk to your buddies because they've all been through it. You know, most people I know with PTSD that deal with it in a healthy manner or try to talk to their buddies about it because they're the ones that know, they get it, that understand. Not everybody else that says all the common things that just piss them off. So that's part of it. You know, an example is one of my deployments I might have told this on YouTube. One of my deployments, I was with a buddy smoking cigars one night. And we were in Baghdad. And the uh, military base there is pretty large. It's called Victory Base Complex, at least at the time. It was a series of forward operating bases surrounded Baghdad International Airport. Geographically, a large piece of land. So we saw rockets coming in on the other side of VBC. It was a few miles away, but we knew there were rockets. We'd seen it before. And this young female specialist came out probably only been in the army a year, year and a half. And she was really excited. She thought it was fireworks. We're like, no, no, it's rockets. She's like, no, those look like fireworks. We're like, yeah, they look like fireworks. Some of them do, but they're rockets. Somebody's attacking the base over there. And she started to get kind of worried and kind of panicky. And we're like, hey, calm down. It's miles away. Nobody's going to hurt us. But then she got more panicky. What happens if it happens here? What, what are we going to do? And we're like, whoa, you need to calm down, relax. She kind of slowly collapsed to the ground. And then the We ended up getting medical assistance because she had what appeared to us possibly be a seizure. And just that situation affected her so bad, she wasn't there very long. She got medical help. She got evacuated. It screwed her up mentally, and then she ended up leaving the military. The thing was, people say all kinds of stuff about her, especially people who weren't in the military, weren't in those environments, got no business shooting their mouth off. What I tell people is, that was a level of her mental preparation. That's where it was. Other people, their mental preparation is far beyond that. You know, there's plenty of people that can, probably more than you think, but not as many as you think, that on an operation can walk through a door, shoot somebody in the face, and go about their day and sleep soundly at night. And then there's a lot of people been in shooting situations that cannot do that, which I think is more normal. There's plenty of people that couldn't even fathom doing that, no matter what. Like uh, when I was first in the military and the infantry on my first deployment to Iraq, You know, we saw, I think it was that guy Berg. He was the first guy I think they put out a video on. They'd cut his head off. They showed us that video a few days before we deployed. And being my first one, that was intense. By my last time I was ever there, I'd seen dozens of those, but it it was intense. And I never really got nervous or excited. The only time was when the plane first started landing in uh, Kuwait. A bunch of people kind of started freaking out because we were finally landing. So it kind of spread really quick. And then I went, oh, we're in Kuwait. So I didn't worry about it. So it didn't seem to bother me. But most of us were trained to be infantrymen to fight the wars. I think for us, it was we wanted to see if we could do it. We were so caught up on whether or not we could do our jobs. Most people never ran into those situations. Most of the guys had a hard time was after something happened, unless it was a sustained gunfight. And that translates to the gray man world, the guys that work in covert and clandestine missions. I mean, there's been times where I've been nervous, but it was more about getting found out, not having like a threat on my life of being captured because most of my work was done in the United States. And most of the time that I worked in the Middle East, I was on a military base or working with military units. The point is there's factors that play in. It's the training that you have for the situation. 
What's your confidence level in that training? I mean, are you cocky about it or are you consciously recognize where your skills and abilities lie as best you can until you get to exercise them in a real world environment, not real world training. So there's kind of a delay there for that. The other thing is finding out and identifying after things start to happen to you doing the job, where are your training gaps? What do you need to work more on and do you choose to do it? What training do you not have and do you seek it out and get it? Because that's where they separate the men from the boys. As a lot of them say, that's where you find the pros versus the amateurs in any of these situations. And I don't think it's any different in any industry. It's just more in your face in these situations where your life's on the line. Part of it's what time do you put in it yourself? So what kind of normal habits do you already have? Like there's people that have told me, I, I want to work for the NSA. I want to work for the CIA. I've met dozens of people like this and I've just walked in their house or known them and said, you'll never get picked up because I know they won't. They don't have regular established habits in their everyday life that would help them. They would just get hindered. You know, they don't clean themselves, keep their places clean, don't have good healthy habits. You know, they don't already choose to further their own education and learn things every day. That's in that world. That's something that happens. Because if you're not force-fed knowledge, you're forcing it on yourself. You know, what kind of base do you have? What kind of family or center, balance, whatever you want to call it, do you have? Some people are very well balanced because of their spiritual faith, whereas some people don't have any faith at all and are completely fine. Some people have a family support system that they can't tell a lot of things to, but they provide them a lot of emotional support that they need, and they know how to make it work for them, whereas some of them don't have families at all. Yet... So many of these people are successful. Some seek counseling privately or through their organizations and agencies. Some read books on it just to help themselves. You know, self-improvement books, common self-improvement books. Other people also recognize um, the need to work out. But in this world, they understand and are taught, especially in certain military places, high-level intelligence stuff. You're looked at high-level being like the legit gray man stuff. You're taught a lot about your body and how to your body, you know, how your body works. Like I think it was in the situational awareness podcast. I talked a lot about that, did a short intro on assessing your own body. There's tons of training on that. And you learn all about how, you know, imbalances in your body and salts and electrolytes, minerals, vitamins, the foods you intake, how many carbs you need, what you're physically capable of doing. You learn all these things about yourself. And then you recognize where fitness comes in. You know, where are you expending physical energy to help maintain that chemical balance to make your brain function properly? That's a big portion of it. You know, working out and stuff's great in that world. You need to be in phenomenal shape. Don't get me wrong. One day I was, not anymore. But they also recognize how it helps them mentally more than even physically. And if you're not doing that already and you want to work in that world, you're going to have a hard time. Part of it, too, is no different than your everyday life. That's why I go back to regular habits, things people are already doing. You know, if you want to learn about mental toughness, look at your own self first for anybody out there. What stresses, what heartbreaks did you go through? What losses did you have? Family members, friends that died or were horribly injured in accidents. You know, did you lose all your money? Did you go bankrupt? Did you lose your home in one of the financial crises? Can you not pay your bills? You know, can you not give your kids the food, even the just food they need? These are all terrible things that happen whether they're our fault or just circumstance or whatever done to us, they're stressful. They cause emotional stress, which can cause physical stress and mental stress. How are you dealing with those things? And some people say, well, I just work through it. Well, that's good, but what does that mean? Like if you're working through it where you're going to therapy or getting help or using healthy habits, that's one thing. If you're working through it like I'm ignoring it and I'm just working harder to pay the bills, Overall, mentally, you're no longer, you're no different in your mental toughness than the person that's lying there in depression on the couch doing nothing. You're just more physically active. But you're not helping your brain at all, so that's part of the mental toughness. How do you deal with stuff now? What can you do to make that better? That's part of the thing, too. When I talk to people that do prepping and survival type stuff, and they talk about all that stuff, one of the things they talk about is mental health and their mental state. What are you doing to be mentally stronger? And a lot of people aren't doing nothing. Like, well, I got some guns and I got a bunch of food and I got some bullets. I got some camping supplies. I got some first aid supplies. You know, and I own 20 acres over here. I'm going to go hang out to. I'm like, okay. What about your brain? Like, what happens if it's just you? How long have you ever been on your own for without able to talk to anybody? How do you deal with that? 
you know, if you have a close friend or a pet and then they're gone, how do you deal with that? Especially in those extreme situations. You know, if you have a hard time dealing with financial loss, not having the basic sustenance or everyday supplies you need, not working, you lost your home, family members, you know, people that are sick, dying, dead. If you don't learn how to handle those in a normal everyday life where you have your basic, most of your basic needs met, in the extreme situations, you're not going to handle them at all. So if you can't handle those, then thinking a survival situation, you're not going to handle it because those are some of the things they look at in that world when they do interviews and stuff. They talk about things that have happened in their life and how they dealt with them, how they react to them in that interview to find out have they dealt with this in a healthy manner? Are they dealing with it? How are they managing this? Do they recognize which things actually are normal and healthy to be part of your just about everyday life and some that shouldn't? Because when you get into that world and your life's on the line, other people's lives are on the line, you know sensitive information, how are you going to handle that stress? Because you're not handling the stuff at home already. You can't handle that job, which is why I say most of them get weeded out in the interview process. Because it's not like you go in and sit down for a couple hours. These interviews can take days, some cases weeks. There are things you can do, though, other things. I mean, books are good, don't get me wrong. I think counseling is a good thing, especially if you have an organization that provides it for free. But there's things you can do, like you can try to clean up things in your life that might need cleaned up that you normally just haven't put the time or effort into or haven't made time for. So for example, when you work at that level, real gray man stuff, high level military stuff, part of the security checks when you get your clearances is they go back and look at your financials. And in some positions, if you've had one late payment ever, you better have a good explanation for it. If you've got two or three, you'll never get in. So like military guys want to work in the White House. It's not about what's on your credit report. It was what was ever on there. It doesn't matter if it's gone now. They can see it. So they find a late payment. You better have a good reason for it. If you don't or you have, I think, two or more or three or more, they'll never hire you. They take it that seriously because of where you're working. So one of the things you can look at is how well could you clean up your credit and pay down your stuff to get your credit in balance there's a big sense of accomplishment there. Figuring all that out, there's plenty of places to look on how to do that. You know, look at it like that. What are the things it would take for me if I was really going to try to get even just a top secret clearance which isn't that big of a deal? Those are things that can help you um, work through problems and stresses and gain some mental toughness. Other things you could do are what kind of physical shape are you in? You know, make some changes in your lifestyle to be healthier. You know, being physically healthier and eating healthier actually helps your brain and body be more efficient and work better. It helps you deal with stress better. You know, you probably have seen, if it isn't you, you've seen it with other people at some point where one or more, if not all major stresses in their life seem to affect the people that are not as physically or mentally healthy as those that are. And a lot of it has to do with just the fitness and health of their mind and body. You know, that's part of it. So you can make changes there to increase your mental toughness. You can work on your resiliency, which is completely different than mental toughness. You know, look up resiliency and learn about that. Look up mindfulness. Learn about mindfulness. Mindfulness has been very helpful to a lot of military veterans. I just want to throw in, too, if anybody's thinking, what's this guy do with the gray man concept? It has everything to do with it. At the end of the day, whether you've had my training or you listen to me and really put time and effort to learn this stuff, if you don't have the resiliency, the mindfulness, and the mental toughness, which are big terms that are very general, if you can't be a critical thinker, the skills only carry you so far, and it's not very far at all. It really isn't. It's really not that far. So you need those things. So people that have those abilities naturally, they do better because you can train a person on anything. But it's very difficult to train the mind to learn and adapt how to cope and deal with stress, be tough, be resilient, be mindful, process all these different things and make them work out the way you need them to in order to survive high-stress situations, whether it's in an office or in the field. Another thing you can look at is look at studies and treatments that aren't things a doctor would prescribe for people that have mental health issues with their memory, especially things like Alzheimer's, but there's other other issues like that, things they train with people 
that their mental, whether it's their mental health or whatever, affect their memory or their awareness of their surroundings. And you can do some of that stuff that actually helps with mental, mental toughness, resiliency, even situational awareness. Some simple examples are puzzles that work your brain, make you think more, especially anything that's crypto-based. There's much harder stuff out there. You can find tons of those at a bookstore. Puzzles are very helpful. Any type of puzzle that isn't like a board puzzle, like a crossword, but maybe it's a mind game, board games that you know are like better versions of Clue for those who even know what Clue is anymore where you have to solve things, figure things out, be like a detective. All those things help. There's tons of training like that that we got. The thing is, too, is you never know how much is the right amount until you're in the real-world situation. You know, the idea is having, like in the military, they have battle drills, but there's similar things with different titles everywhere. The idea is you learn to do something specific under ideal circumstances. You do it repetitively, and it's never going to be ideal when it happens. But the thing is, the more you can learn how to put a process into action as just secondhand, you know, don't have to think about it. Your mind is free. You don't have to think about that. You can pay attention to the other portions of what's going on. The other guys can't pay attention to and you have that mental advantage. So if you want to go on the road of figuring some of this stuff out for yourself, trying to get better at it, especially to help you with anything involving the gray man concept, well, Take a look at anything in your life that's stressful now or has been in the past, regardless of your age. Think about the stuff you did to deal with it. Even if you just sit on the computer and look up ways to deal with it now and find options, even read some things on your own, come to some resolutions and solutions, you may find yourself feeling better mentally. That's part of what it is. It's how do you deal with that stuff. If you don't deal with those things that now or in the past, then when the new ones come up, it won't matter because you've already established that pattern. You haven't dealt with those things before. So now what happens is you get these new ones, you're not going to do anything differently and you're actually going to be worse off. You just might be numb to it. Also take a look at things people have told you you need to deal with or talk about. You know, a lot of them, it's just they need you to talk about it. But if you hear a lot from somebody, you need to deal with this, you need to move on, you need to talk about it, these types of things, and you disagree. Most of the time we disagree because these other people are throwing it in our face all the time. Quietly on your own, take a look at those two and don't talk to those people about it because they're just going to get more in your face. They're going to say the things that are going to piss you off. Get through those things. Work them out. Figure them out on your own. Maybe you get to the point where you do talk about it to other people. And then they're like, oh, well, what'd you do? Did you do this? Like, it's none of your business. I'm just letting you know what to dealt with. But you can approach those things too because there's things about yourself you're not going to see. I will say I think people that have lived the professional gray man life, as I call it, kind of cheat. The reason they cheat is they have to live this way all the time. So if they work on the East Coast somewhere around one of the agencies or DC, for example, one of the major headquarters locations, they're working out of there, but they're doing some field work. They still in their everyday life and go home and see their family have to live this way. They have to look out for those threats. They're already doing it subconsciously or secondhand because they were trained to do it. They use their own residence and stuff as practice when they're first learning it. But when they have these real interactions, they're paying attention to it. They're looking for things. They're situational where find out if somebody's following them because they don't want to be followed home. They don't want those threats. So they kind of have it turned on all the time. And it's a more natural thing in a person's life than how people who don't have that training do it when they're, say, on a military operation for a year and come back. So it appears more normal. Most of them are more mentally healthy than the average person. The training is very natural to them. So it's not really training. It's just something they put into practice and they live that way all the time. But they still have things that come up they have to deal with. Even if they don't have anything in their personal life, what happens when something happens on the job? They can investigate it. I've been investigated numerous times. You know, what happens if they have to talk to a Senate oversight committee? Had to do that once. It was not the funnest thing. Got a little more respect for senators when that happened. Talked to a House of Representatives committee once. Same thing. I got the same opinions about those guys as most people, but... When you're talking to somebody who can ruin your life or really affect it, you get a little different appreciation for them. You know, what happens when you lose a partner or a buddy on the job? Those are stresses. You know, what happens when you know what should probably be done, they won't listen to you, and it turns out they were wrong. Or even worse, what you wanted probably would have been right. 
even though we always think it's that way. Sometimes it's just they're wrong. We want somebody to blame. And then recognizing that, is that really what happened? Or was I already dealing with stuff badly, not dealing with it, and looking for somebody to blame on something else? And can you identify that in yourself? I do hope people enjoying this because this seems like one of my more boring topics, I guess, because it is part of the subject. It's nothing I was ever thinking about talking about, but I've talked about it to people before. And I don't know. It sounds vague to me. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I'm sorry if it is vague, but I, I would start with things I recommended looking at yourself, not other people looking at the things you recognize, looking at the things other people recognize, read up a few articles on the website wherever you want to go about mindfulness, resiliency, and mental toughness. There's plenty of articles out there. Don't just look at ones in medical journals or by psychiatrists. Look at ones for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Look at ones from the military. Look at ones in the private sector. Look up college studies. Look up just books. There's a lot of good information out there. You'll find a lot of consistencies. How can you apply that to your own life? Determine if you should talk to somebody. You know, and if you can swing it with a professional, it's the way to go. You know, if you've never been to a professional psychologist or psychiatrist, most of the stuff people think about them, either so-called told by other people, is what we see on TV. I've seen professional mental health people many times, had to, been forced to because of incidents, um, had to do it when I went through the retirement process, had to do it when I got VA disability, done it by choice for different reasons. I've never once had an experience that was bad like I saw on TV with the exception of my evaluation for the VA where it was a student who wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing and got corrected and I got a different mental health person with a new appointment on a different date. Other than that, it's not what you think. You know, if you can't swing it, then find somebody you trust and don't take it too close to home. Something else to consider too is that whole world, especially what we call gray men, clandestine intelligence, that's all secrets and lies. That's all it is. Secrets and lies. You're hiding secrets and telling lies. I think the hardest thing is balancing that out with your family, figuring out what lies are okay, because by definition, a lot of things you do are a lie. There's other ways to characterize them. That's also true, whether it's misleading, it's incomplete. Omission, I don't think omission's a lie necessarily all the time, and rare occasions, of course. But it's getting them to understand, you know, I can't talk about this kind of stuff. So then it's not a lie. You know, it's, it's wrestling with those subjects if it's difficult for you to figure out what it is. Like, are there things in your career that you cannot talk about at home or should not talk about at home? You know, and then how do you not do that? Can you get those things under control? That will help you make you stronger mentally. But that whole world's secrets and lies. And it's figuring that stuff out. Very recently, I was talking to some buddies. I said, look, I'm waiting for you guys to say something so I can kind of hint at you something to look at. And I believe this was Sunday, not this last Sunday, but like 11, 12 days ago Sunday. And they didn't get there. And I said, look, there's some things I know about a realistic threat that will happen. Could get bad. Hard to see how that'll play out. I can't say anything about it because of how I found out. Because even in the manner in which I was communicating, if I say something, I'm going to get talked to. So... We'll wait it out. Three, four days go by. It goes down. And then I tell him, this is what I was talking about. Kind of gave him a forecast of how it would spread, how it would act in other areas, why it's being done this way. This is what the intel says. And why this may sound specific, it's actually very vague to what I know. So far, it's playing out that way. That's part of a bigger thing that you know takes a lot more to get real serious. But I was kind of in a position where I kind of flirt with the information. But on the job, I never did that. There's been even times where I did the YouTube show where I'd get asked questions. I'm like, I, I'm not going to answer that or I can't answer that because uh, I can't because I have respect for that type of information being classified. There was a show I was on early on, I think before I even had my own YouTube channel, where I got asked about some Chinese naval development of some type and I told them to hold on. We're on live. This guy got all asked up about it, but I had to go look it up because it'd been years. I had every reason to believe the info was out there. It was just the last time... I had looked at this subject was in a classified CIA brief that I got on it. It was very serious stuff. I was like, I just got to go look this up. I'm sure it's fine. It took me like two, three minutes, tons of stuff out there. 
unmuted myself. Here we go. I gave an answer. Um, but I needed to check because it's not something that was in my everyday life. I hadn't really paid attention to Chinese naval weapon development anymore. Even at the time that I was given that information, when I wasn't working in the U.S., Middle East and North Africa was my AO. I didn't work anywhere else. The other thing, too, is it's a lifelong thing. Like, uh, like sometimes it's easier in the military. Like, you leave the military. There's a lot of things you forget if you're not doing that type of work anymore. Things that you don't tell people, even if you did, they probably don't matter. Probably not classified anymore. You know, I remember very few names of people I interrogated or captured. You know, there's stuff like that. Whereas in the gray man world, there's things that are always going to be true. You're going to know forever. And you just kind of learn how to forget it. Because it's unlikely you'll be asked. You know, just thinking off the top of my head, there's all kinds of random things I know that are highly classified. Uh, but I don't talk about them. Because it's, well, it's legal, but it's not right to do. I believe in protecting that information. That's just where I sit with it. But there's all kinds of stuff I steer people to. I even pointed out, to, I don't know if I pointed out or the guy pointed out to me, but there's times when I did YouTube where part of what I had learned through my own mental toughness was how to negotiate, navigate conversations in a way to avoid subjects where I would, I would flat lie to people. I'd have to. I would cause doubt and confusion in an idea they had, but I did it in such a way that if they were really paying attention by the way the conversation was over, really have to know me to figure out if they really analyze what I said, they can figure out what the right track to go is, but they got to look at like the three or four minutes, you know, not a couple statements. So for me, it's something I live with all the time because I get asked about it or I bring it up because I do podcasts like this. So granted, this is longer and I, I think I'm probably rambling at this point. And I'm sorry if I am, if you do want to ask a question, you of course, email me or message me on the links below for Facebook, Twitter. You can shoot me an email straight off my Facebook account. You can go to the Anchor app or the Anchor website, click the message button, and using your phone or microphone, you can leave me a voice question that I'll hear and I'll put up just like this one if you want to do that. I do hope everybody's staying safe because I know it's getting a little crazier in some areas, especially in my hometown. If you can't figure out where my hometown is because it got crazy there lately, you're either not watching the news at all or you have no idea that the mythical world of Chaz is in Seattle. The giveaway is about to happen. I think the videos are very interesting. They're going to challenge the biases. I think they're approaching most of the things I've talked about. Uh, the rules for it are very easy. It's not like I could put a lot of rules on and prove it anyway. But I think people are going to like it. I'm giving away three sets of two books. Assuming at least three people I think do well enough to deserve them. I don't know. Perhaps I should give three books. I, maybe I should give the books away that people do the worst. Like, man, you really need to read. I don't know. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reward three people with two books. So one of the books is called Telling Lies. When I put the episode up, I will put the links to the books in there because I know people hear it long after the contest is over. I will give you a few weeks to look this stuff over. Telling Lies, written by Paul Ekman. He's a guy who focuses heavily on micro expressions and reading emotions on people's faces. You know, I... I think he uses the word lie a little much, but uh, it's, a, it's a good book that I use. The other book I'm going to be giving away is called Spy the Lie, which is a catchy title because the three CIA case officers that wrote it don't really use that term in real life too much. But it's a really good book talking about different case studies, things they've done, situations they've been in, where they look at how people are deceptive. They're focusing heavily on types of deception, and they do everything from looking at body language to the situation, how people react in conversations, what they do, they play culture into it. A lot of good stuff in there. It's a really great book. So if you're going to look at these videos and try to write in to identify how people are performing deception based on how I tell you to look for it, don't try and buy these books because you might win them and I'll mail them to you at my own cost. And then I'm already planning probably doing something else in another 20 or 30. Around episode 40 or 50, we'll probably do something else. Uh, but that's coming soon. I think it should be challenging. I hope a lot of people really try it out. You know, to give you an opportunity to try to put some of this into practice. And if you're looking to do that and you got time, go back and start listening to some of the podcasts on detecting deception, body language, things like that to talk about those different subjects. And that'll help you out as well as watch videos wherever you want. Thank you. 
and we will have hopefully a shorter podcast next time for you right here on Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight.